You know, in our house, after dinner, it is kind of customary for us to have a special treat. It is called dessert. My dad is very fond of dessert. It's where I get it from. And if my dad comes to visit, he wants a special treat. My kids know that if they are eating all their food, if they've cleaned their plates, if they've had a good attitude for it, then they're probably going to get a special treat. That's their, that's their hope. You know, I've heard them say, man, I, I, I hope, we, hope we get a special treat after this. Or maybe I hope we get to go to Sweet Frog. That's a lot of the times. That's what happens. <laughs> I can remember as a kid at uh, summer camp, we used to have eating competitions. And that is starting to catch up with me now. But we used to have taco eating competitions. And I can remember every night before we went to dinner, I'd say, man, I, I hope it's taco night. I hope it's because I was the champion, by the way. 21 tacos. <laughs> it's not bad, right? As a young adult, perhaps people are hoping that you get accepted to a college, right? You're hoping, man, I've filled out all these applications. I, I, I'm really hoping that I get accepted into at least one of these colleges. And maybe as a young adult, you're hoping that that person that's your... You're checking out that guy, that girl. You're hoping that they return that. They're hoping that maybe you'll be able to date. You know, as an adult, our hopes become different. Our hopes go to, man, I hope I can pay the mortgage this month, right? I hope we can survive. And as our bodies start to wear down, if you're anything like me, you say, man, I hope my back doesn't go out doing strange things. I threw my back out this summer just jumping in the pool. I don't know how you do that, but I did. And... We're saying to ourselves, man, I, I hope that that doesn't happen. You know, it's interesting. This word hope, we throw it around. We use it a lot. In fact, there are people that have done experiments to prove that such a thing, hope, exists. There was an experiment, maybe you've heard about it a few years ago. There was an experiment on hope. They had a bucket full of water, two buckets full of water. And in one bucket, they put some rats, okay? Pretty nasty, but they put some rats. And they did the same thing in another bucket. But this bucket over here, they just kind of left the rats alone. And in a matter of an hour, less than an hour, every one of those rats had drowned and died. Now, with this bucket over here, they had the rats in this bucket in the, in the same type of water, but periodically they would take it out, ooh, right, and they'd put it to the side. And they'd take another one out and put it to the side and then put it back in. They would do that periodically. And after they did that regularly for a little while, they came back 24 hours later. And each one of those rats were still swimming. Not because they got out and they had a break. It was because they had hope that sometime, some way, somebody's going to come and pull them out of that water and give them a break. After 24 hours, they were still swimming because of hope. You know, in our study of 1 Thessalonians, we have talked about this thing called hope at length. It's an expectation. It's a confidence. It is from the Greek word elpo, which is to anticipate. You know, it seems, and we talked a little bit about this last week, it seems as if though, maybe if you're watching the news before you go to bed or when you get up in the morning or maybe you go to a news site, it seems as though sometimes there's no hope. It seems like things are going wrong. Well, today I want to remind you 
our church family, believers, that there is hope. And that hope is found in Jesus Christ. We're going to be in, back in the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4. And we're going to be finishing up chapter 4, verses 13 through 18 this morning. And it will be up on the, on, on the screen as we go through. And we are going to continue. We don't actually have many sermons left in 1 Thessalonians. We're going to keep going and we're going to go through to 2 Thessalonians. I can say that it has been a joy. It has been a pleasure. It has been a challenge. I hope that you have been challenged by it. But what a great study. You know, this passage... Chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. This is actually a passage that is often used in funerals. And you may think, oh, great, you know, I've I've come to be encouraged, you know, I've come to to feel a little bit better this morning, and you're going to talk about something that has to do with the funeral. But it's about hope. First, before we jump into the passage, there's a couple things that I want you to remember and keep in mind. Number one is this church at Thessalonica, they are a young church, A young church physically, how do we know that? Because we're not that far removed from Acts chapter 2, the birth of the church in the day of Pentecost. So we know that they're young physically. But they're also young and they're kind of immature in their understanding of certain things. Keep that in mind. Also, number two, as we saw last week, some of them, not all of them, but some of them are lazy and irresponsible. Remember, we, we, we found out yesterday that there were some that were just sitting back and taking advantage of other people, not doing the work that they know that they should do because they figure, ah, God's coming back anyway. There were some of them were lazy and irresponsible. But what is clear as we get into this passage is there is a misunderstanding about one thing. And in the Greek, it's the parousia. It is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was some misunderstanding. And so Paul is going to jump into this subject Which, by the way, the coming of Christ, the end times, that has been a source of dissension in the church for a long time. We're going to try not to get off on that. But what he wants to make sure is that they understand certain things. He takes note that they need to know about it. In verse 13, he says that you were uninformed. In the New King James Version, it says that they were ignorant of things. And that just means that they just didn't have the knowledge to be able to make an informed decision decision. Lack of knowledge, one commentator suggests, is what led Paul to write this reassuring paragraph, which by the way, remember, this is a good letter. This is the letter that the Apostle Paul is writing to encourage them to say, you know what? Keep going. This blessed reassurance, it is about something that is good and encouraging. But what we understand is this. If we have a lack of knowledge, a lot of times there's going to be misunderstandings. What is the source of most of our arguments and grumblings and things like that in relationships? It is misunderstandings that come from miscommunication, whether it be with a friend, a spouse, whether it may be in churches. They boil down to these miscommunications. And miscommunication leads to misunderstandings, and misunderstanding leads to problems. And our problems can range from the smallest, minute thing, but can also lead to something that could break a marriage, split a church, And it comes from misunderstanding. So Paul wanted to make sure, right up front, that we don't have any misunderstandings as we start this passage. He's about to give them some knowledge. Why? Well, we don't have to guess about it. It says, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. One commentator puts it this way. Himself, Paul, is in possession of a comfort about the state of the Christian dead. He could not leave them in ignorance of it. As his Christian brethren, they must be sharers with him. See, Paul understands. Paul has been given a revelation about what is going to happen. And he has this knowledge that could help alleviate the issues that they were dealing with. And that was grieving about people 
friends, relatives, brothers and sisters who are asleep, the passage says. This is interesting. The same word asleep is found in 1 Corinthians 15. It's found three different times. 1 Corinthians 15, 18, it says, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Uh, Verse 20, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Verse 51 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. This word sleep, it's a metaphor for death. When the Bible talks about death, it talks about separation. There is a separation that occurs in death. And for the believer, it is simply the separation of the soul and the body, and the body to the soul. And so he speaks of this death as a sleep. Morris, in his book, says, Paul speaks of the departed as those who fall asleep, where it's a present participle which points to an existing situation that implies a future awakening. This whole concept of death has been transformed. You understand that if someone is sleeping, then there's a good chance that they could wake up. It is taking what seemed to be forever and making it temporary, which leads Paul to talk to them about their grieving experience. Most of us have lost somebody. Most of us have felt that very real pain and grief and sorrow, especially when we lose someone and it affects us in a very real and very profound way. Some people will say, you know, this passage is telling us, it's telling us that we shouldn't grieve like that. We shouldn't do that. And I want to tell you this morning that that is not what Paul is saying. And that's not what I'm saying to you this morning. Look, context is everything. Whenever you're reading anything, an article, a book, whatever it may be, but especially here in the Bible, context is everything. You realize if we just took certain verses out of the Bible, we could pretty much make them say anything we want. I mean, take, for instance, uh, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Look, if I decided that I was just going to quote that verse over and over again and get in a little rowboat and go over Niagara Falls while I'm quoting it, it's probably not going to end up very well for me. But I would say, oh no, I can do all things through blue, 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 right? I mean, it wouldn't make any sense. But if I read it in context and understood what it meant, I would understand that, oh, you know what? It doesn't matter what I'm going through in life. It doesn't matter if I lose my job or lose somebody in my family. I know that I can be content through the power of Christ who strengthens me. Look, it's all about context. And so when we look here, it's not that Paul is saying, don't grieve. That's not what he's saying. Look, When a loved one passes on, it is natural to be sad. It's completely natural to feel that loss and to weep. No one should ever feel guilty of such a thing. Again, you no doubt have lost someone. We've all felt the pain and some greater than others. We've been there. You've been there sitting at a funeral. Maybe at a graveside. Maybe at a memorial service or a celebration of somebody's life. And you no doubt have had to try to choke back those tears. Or maybe you've just let it go. But you have been sad and grieving. It's natural. You've experienced a loss. What are you supposed to do? Isn't in fact that's what Jesus did? Didn't Jesus cry over someone that he loved? And if you've ever been in an environment where you've had to actually memorize scripture, you are so thankful for John 11.35, Jesus wept. That's the one I want to be able to memorize, right? Jesus wept. Look, this is the scene. Jesus was walking around. People came up to him and said, Hey, look, your friend Lazarus, he's he's died. 
he's dead. And he, maybe you could have done something about it, but now you're, 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 you're not around there. It's been four days. Don't go close. It's, you know, it's decomposing. It's nasty. And, but what Jesus does is he sees their sadness and he feels their grief. He feels their pain. He sees the effect that death has on people. John eleven thirty three through 35 says, When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, that's his sister, Lazarus' sister, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit. And he was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said, Lord, come and see. And then, verse 35, Jesus wept. He was moved. He wept for his friend who had died. He wept for the people around him because he could see the effect that it had on him. It's a part of nature. It's part of who we are. It was a part of who Jesus was. He wept. Look, one author says this, and I love it. The Master Himself gave relief to His nature in weeping, even in view of a speedy resurrection. Jesus Christ knew He had the power to raise the dead. He knew that Lazarus was going to come out and start walking in just a few minutes, yet He still wept. So I say, grieve. Cry, let your emotions be free to express themselves. But what Paul wants to make sure is that we understand that our grieving as believers, it will be different. Not different in the amount of tears that you cry. Don't get that wrong. Not in the the, the long days that we remember that loved one that's lost in the hole in our heart. Not that. But in the hope that we have. In fact, Paul puts it very bluntly that we should grieve differently because there are those who have no hope. Look at verse 13 again. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. He says the rest. Look, he's speaking to brethren. Look at verse 13. He's speaking to brethren. He's speaking to believers. Then he says there's the rest, the people that are on the outside looking in who haven't put their faith and trust in Jesus. So then a believer's grief should be different because we have a hope. In case Paul... In case there's any miscommunication about what that hope is, Paul is going to lay out the facts of that hope. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 is literally the primary facts of Christianity. We see Jesus died, He rose again, and He's coming back. These are the foundational issues. Look at fact number one. Jesus died. Look, this is a historical fact. Jesus of Nazareth was put to death on a criminal's cross. We know that not a bone was broken in his body, just like it was prophesied. We know he was beaten, he was spit upon, and he died on a a criminal's cross. We know, but look, it says that he died. It's a change, right? It's a change from what Paul said about believers who have died. He said they are asleep. But he says about Jesus, he had died. What's the difference? Look, when one experiences death, there is a separation that we spoke of earlier. Jesus not only physically died, but He paid the penalty for for sin, which is death, which is separation from the Father. Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice that only He could have paid because it had to be a perfect sacrifice. He took the full brute on force of sin and the separation that came with it. Look, it was a penalty that you and I owed, but we could not pay that. He paid the penalty on our behalf, even though He didn't owe it. Jesus died in the true meaning of the word, and he took it all for you and for me. So fact number one, Jesus died. Fact number two, Jesus rose from the grave. And now, those of you who are here and you're just kind of hanging on by a thread, you're like, okay, I had you at death, but rise from the grave, that's a little crazy. I'm not sure about that. But here's what I know. 
And here's what I believe. I believe that the Bible is a written, inspired, inerrant Word of God, and it is true. And what we find in the Word of God is we find eyewitness accounts that Jesus rose from the grave. It was written down. You had the empty tomb. There was nothing there. You know, the empty tomb was guarded by soldiers who put their lives on the line, who stood there to make sure that the Christians didn't come and try to steal the body to make it look like, oh, everything's working perfectly. See, people throughout history have thought, oh, maybe Christianity is a hoax, but there was way too many people involved in this death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ for it to be a hoax. The women that saw Him, it was recorded in the Gospels that two women saw Him first. Look, at this point in society, women were second-rate citizens. Why would they have recorded that? It was important. Over 500 people saw Jesus raised from the dead. Thomas got to put his fingers in his wounds. Look at the disciples. What happened when Jesus was taken away? The disciples ran and hid, didn't they? They went into a room and they hid and they were scared. But days later, after they saw the risen Savior, look at the courage that they had. Look at what they were willing to do. They were willing to put their faith in the line and die for Christ. Because he was risen from the grave. They changed their life. Paul changed his life. It's written. It's an eyewitness account. And so Jesus died for our sins. And he defeated sin and death. Fact number three. He is coming again. As we stated at the beginning, this parousia, the, the future visible return of Jesus Christ, is going to happen. He is going to come back for His church. And we're going to get into that a little bit more detail in a little bit. But here, look, the facts are laid before Him. They have now the facts. They're laid before you and I today. They are the facts that perhaps, and I've talked to the, the, my Sunday school class about this this morning, perhaps you've heard these facts over and over and over again, and perhaps you've been desensitized to the fact that it actually happened. Does it make a difference? Does it make a difference in your life? Do you Believe it. Notice what he says about the facts. He says, if we believe. Notice what Paul has done here. He's basically gave the plan of salvation. This is the foundation of Christian faith, that Jesus died for our sins, that He rose again, and that He is coming back. And it says, if we believe, that is, that if we had the confidence, if we had been persuaded about the truth, that He is who He said He is, that is, is what we call saving faith. Which is what separates the brethren, Christians, from the rest. Those who don't know Christ. Look, you may be here this morning and you go, you know what? I'm part of the rest. I don't, I don't really buy into Jesus. And maybe you've been to church before. Maybe you've heard an invitation given. Maybe you've seen people raise their hand or come up front or say the sinner's prayer. Look, it's not about any of those. There's not a specific prayer that you can utter and all of a sudden everything's okay. You know what it is? It's your belief in God through God's faith, for God's grace for you. It's your belief. You can utter a million words and if you don't believe it, it doesn't matter. I want to tell you this morning, you do not have to be on the outside looking in. You don't have to miss out on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ because one day He will return. The Bible has said it and we're going to look at that more in a few minutes. But don't leave here today being on the outside looking in. If, you, if, if you're curious about it, if you want to know, look, we're not, I'm not going to have anyone come forward or raise your hand. Look, if you want to know, ask someone next to you. Ask Pastor Larry. Ask me. We would love to talk to you about it and let you know how you can have that hope and have that blessed reassurance. But what Paul wanted to make clear in verse 15, these aren't his words. 
Just like these words that you are hearing this morning, they're not my words, they're from God. Paul had got a direct revelation from God, and we can debate on where that came from and and, and where these words of, of Christ came from, but what we know is Paul got the information. And so what we're about to look into is this direct revelation about the return of Jesus Christ. As I mentioned before, it is a topic that has divided many good people, many God-fearing, Bible-believing Christians. And I want to just caution us real quick. This is one of the largest accounts of the coming of Christ. An eschatological event. It's it's one of the largest accounts, and I know our our danger is to, to get off track on that. But what I want to do is I want to make sure we stick to the main point, the big idea of this passage. That this passage was written to inform and to comfort So let's look at it with that in mind. One commentator reminds us we need to be careful that we do not bring our own presuppositions to the table when it comes to the end times. It is foolish to attempt to go one step beyond what is written. We all want to know more. We all want to know exactly how it's going to happen. But what we got is what we got. And it's right there. And it it, it lays it out plain as day. And we're going to look at that. But no more. We're going to stick to the main point. Their friends, their family, brothers and sisters in Christ have passed away. And they don't want them to miss the coming of Jesus Christ. And he's going to point out they're not going to. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Notice it says the Lord himself. The Lord himself will return. That same person that ascended is the same person who's going to descend. And it says that he will descend with a shout. This word shout is an order. It's a command, like, a, like a, a leader of an army that gives a shout, a command, a charge. He is giving a command. He's coming with a shout. Isn't that in direct contrast to how he came the first time? When Jesus came the first time, there was no fanfare, right? There were no shouts. Now, there were the announcement of angels, but that was very small and very, very humble. Not flashy, not low-key. He was born in a manger. He was born to an unsuspecting woman. He lived a simple life. He helped and he loved and he healed, but he didn't overassert himself as he was showing the love and the power of God. But now, when he comes back for his church, when he comes back for you and I that are believers, he comes back with the shout in order for his church to join him. And there it says that there will be a sound of a trumpet. Look, we don't have to get into that. I don't know why Paul would have put trumpet there if he didn't mean it was going to be a sound of a trumpet. But here's one thing I want you to recognize. The sound of a trumpet, the trumpet is associated with divine activity throughout the Bible. One such time is in Exodus. I want to just set the scene for you. I'm going to read the scripture. As the people of Israel were roaming around the desert, God said, look, Moses, I want to meet with my people. Get them cleaned up, get them concentrated, gather them around the mountain, but don't let them get too close. I want to speak to them. And here's what happened. So it came about on the third day, when it was morning, that there were thunder and lightning flashes, and a thick cloud upon the mountain, and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out to the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Look, the trumpet is simply the instrument. It is the power of God communicated through that trumpet that will raise the death. Look how now his power will be on full display. 
It will be with a shout, with the sound of a trumpet. He's not coming as someone humble. He's coming as something more of a shock and awe. We, it is going to be seen and it is going to be heard. And what does he say? Paul says, the dead in Christ will rise first. And so look, I understand we want to continue. We want to get through this prophetic calendar. We understand that it's being laid out. But notice he says, the dead in Christ. Notice that not even death can separate the union that you and I as believers have in Christ. No matter if we have breath in our lungs or not, we as believers are never separated from Christ. It is sealed, it is a promise, and it is everlasting. And our loved ones, their loved ones that they mourn, they're not going to miss out on a thing. In fact, as one commentator says, the departed will be the most privileged they're going to they're gonna be first. This is fair, he says, for if they have endured the pangs of death to reach Christ, it is right that they should see him first. So it's not about that they're going to miss it. They're going to be privileged. You see, verse 17 settled it. They're not going to miss it. But he says, now what about the ones who are still alive? Paul says, we. He uses the word we. And, and, and there's... There's been some discussion as to exactly what he meant. Did he think he was going to be alive for the coming of Christ? And what we're going to find out uh, in two weeks as we continue is this, that you know, we know that Christ can come back at any moment. So he knew it could happen, but it really just is simply, Paul was part of the living. So he's going to include himself in that we. He's connected to the body of Christ, as are you and I, through that commonality of having a relationship with Jesus Christ. So verse 17, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet him in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Man, it's getting good, right? This is what we have to look forward to. It says that we are going to be caught up. This is from the Latin term, raptus, which is where we get the rapture. Paul says it's going to happen in the blink of an eye in 1 Corinthians. At that appointed time, Jesus will say, you know what? I'm coming back for my church. This term, raptus, is also used in John 28. It says, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will ever snatch them, raptus them, out of my hand. John 10, 29, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snap them out of the Father's hand. It's from the root word to choose. As we're going to see as we get into 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2, it says, But we should also give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen, has raptured you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in trust. Look, when we say yes to God, when we say yes to put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, no one can ever change that. Look, death cannot change it. No matter how horrific and untimely it may be, death can do nothing. Look, our mistakes, our sin cannot change that. No matter how deplorable and offensive to somebody else that it may be, it's not going to change that. Our enemy, as strong as it may be, cannot change your eternal security. We are eternally secure. One day, Christ says, you know what? I will come back for you. And it says, where is he going to meet us? In the clouds. He's going to meet us in the clouds. There's going to be a great reunion in the clouds. Same word for when the Israelites were being led around the desert by a cloud. This is not a surprise. If you remember back in Acts 1, I'm going to read it. Acts 1, uh, verses 10 through 11. It says, and after he had said these things, He was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. This is Jesus ascending to heaven. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. 
And he said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. We're told by eyewitnesses here in Acts of what happened and how it was all going to play out. And now here in 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, it's being confirmed to us that our Savior will come back. What does it say next? Since he's going to come back for us. And then we shall always be with the Lord. Separation at that point will be impossible. Isn't that really what we're looking forward to? Isn't that what we're hanging on for when we see our Father face to face? When we will be together, you and I, the fighting will end, the sadness will end, the loneliness will end, whatever financial struggles you have will end, we will be with him forever. Doesn't that keep you going sometimes? When you get down and maybe you get depressed? You know, people try to explain away life using reason and logic. And there is areas for reason and logic. What they try to do is say, there's got to be an explanation for what happens when you die. I've got to be honest, the people that say that this is all there is, if this was all there is, I, I, I believe I would struggle with depression. That would be depressing. If this... As fun as it can be, as exciting as it can be, this was all there is and it wasn't a purpose for it. Look, people will try to say, there's other things. They will reason. See, reasoning cannot conquer the common hopelessness of man. They may say, oh, well, what about reincarnation? Well, I've got to be honest. No thanks. I don't want to do this again. <laughs> Life's hard, right? I mean, I, maybe I can do better, but I, no, I don't want to do it again. They say, oh, well, you know what? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. You're just going to go into the ground and you're going to rot and the worms are going to eat you and all that kind of stuff. Look, I don't want that either. There's got to be something more. There is no explanation that comes close for what happens when you die other than being in heaven with our Creator for eternity as believers. So 17 says, and we shall always be with the Lord. Isn't that what we were created for? We were designed for that. You and I to be in fellowship with our Father forever. And of course we mess that up, but our Father is going to set the record straight. Morris in his book says, the climax comes here with, we will be with the Lord forever. He understands there are many points on which we would like further information. But when Paul comes to that great fact, that we're going to be with the Lord forever, that makes everything else unimportant. And so he stops. There's no need to add to it. This idea of, the parousia, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, is being brought to a close. But the challenge doesn't. This revelation stops here, but the challenge for what we need to do doesn't. Look, Paul wrote with a very specific purpose in mind. To give the Thessalonians some knowledge. To help them along on their struggle. He wants them to understand that Jesus died. And He rose again, and He's coming Again, Lord, he, he, he gives them kind of the big scheme of things. But what are they supposed to do with it? What are you and I supposed to do with it? What kind of difference is it supposed to make to, for us as we walk out of these doors today? Verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. They were struggling with grief. 
They were struggling with how they should grieve over the people who have died, who didn't know, or who knew Jesus Christ. They thought that it, they, they may miss out on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, no, they're not going to. This is how it's all going to pan out. And then he says, comfort each other with these words. He uses the same term, comfort, eight times in this book already. It's translated exhort, encourage, instruct, console. Look, think about all the things that we have talked about this morning. And I know it's a lot of stuff to, 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 to compact into a short amount of time here. But think about this, as we talked about last week. The, the God of the universe stepping out of heaven because he, he loved us, as we talked about. He loved us and he died for us. He took on the full penalty of death. And he defeated sin. He defeated death. And he ascended to the heaven in a cloud. And he promised to come back in that same way. See, Paul reaffirms what we have heard. That no believer, whether they are past or alive, are going to miss it. It will be a great reunion with our past loved ones, but more importantly, a great reunion with our Savior, who we will never, ever, ever be without again. That should energize you. That should comfort you. That should inspire you to live better, to live happier. And it should inspire you to inspire other people to live better, to live happier. It is perhaps the greatest news that could ever be put together, all jumbled into one passage. One author says this, Paul's words are a source of continual strengthening for the believer. Not a spur to fascination with the future. They convey assurance that the power of God will never be defeated. God is supreme, and when he sees that the time has come, he will draw his age to a close and usher in the new age with this parousia, this coming. Whether we live or whether we die, we do not go beyond his power. Even in the face of death, that antagonist that no one can tame, we can remain calm and triumphant, for we know that those who sleep in Jesus and that they have their place in the final scheme of things. Look, this this passage should be a source of strength. A source of inspiration, not a word that causes division. Not a word that causes us to speculate about things that are not necessarily in this passage. As we come to a close this morning, I want you to think about. I want you to think about these words that we have heard this morning. I want to encourage you in your daily struggles as life indeed is hard. But as I said about the inspiration, that word to comfort also has an idea about inspiring people. You should be inspired to live better, but you should also inspire other people so they should live in the light of eternity, which, by the way, is knocking on the doorstep. This should comfort you. You should comfort other people because you know the truth. You now have the hope that can carry you on for days to days and days and days. And so as you hear these words from Jesus, may it comfort you. Jesus says this, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. May the words of Jesus Christ himself inspire you and comfort you to live in the light of eternity. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. 
Or what a great passage to look at. What a challenge to try to talk about all those things in such a short amount of time. But what we've come to realize is this. That there are the facts, the foundation of Christianity that we have understood today. That is that you came and you died, you conquered sin and death, you rose and you will come back again. Lord, we understand that all believers, no matter past or present or future, they will not miss out on the coming of Christ. We understand that. Lord, may we be comforted. May we be inspired by these words that you have given us today to go out and to live in the light of eternity. What an awesome thing to think about you coming for your church your bride. Lord, may we be living in such a way that we are ready. Lord, I pray for those here this morning that may not know you, that may be one of the rest, the people looking in, that maybe perhaps do not have the hope that is found in you, Lord, that you will work in their heart and their life and that they will come to know you this morning. Lord, we are forever grateful for what you do for us. And we pray that as we leave these doors today, that we can be changed, that we can be encouraged, that we can Leave this place just a little bit different than when we came in. We thank you for your love. We thank you for who you are. It's in your name we ask all these things. Amen.